You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Falangong. This is episode 17, Spyclopedia number 2, Lewis Mortimer Bloomfield, or Murder, Inc. 2. Today I'm recording from Montego Bay. So, the thing about setting up an intelligence operation is that the people who run it end up thinking that they're gods. The very nature of it puts a small number of people in charge of a large amount of secret information and power. There's probably a systems theorist who could explain it in more functional terms. Time and time again, there's a pattern throughout history of this happening. Now, in some times and places, intelligence agencies end up seizing state power, like in post-Soviet Russia. But in other places, they just enrich themselves. Because it sure would be a shame to let all of those contacts and skills go to waste, right? Let's go through this thing systematically. First, we're going to hear H. Montgomery Hyde's account of what Stevenson got up to during his time in Jamaica. And then we'll talk about the subject of the episode, Lewis Mortimer Bloomfield. Let's get into it. In 1947, William Stevenson hooked up with some of his wartime associates, like the bankers Sir Rex Benson and Sir Charles Hambro, General Donovan of the OSS, some U.S. and Canadian industrialists like Edward Statinius of the U.S. Steel Corporation. They combined forces and formed the incredibly dumbly named British American Canadian Corporation. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? The British American Canadian Corporation. Sensibly, they later changed the name to the World Commerce Corporation. Now, if you don't know anything about the World Commerce Corporation, then it might sound like a dumb, fake company working in the business industry. If you have heard about it, though, you might be getting chills down your spine knowing where I'm going with this. Now, I quote Hyde here in describing the World Commerce Corporation as originally designed to fill the void left by the big, left by the breakup of the big German cartels, which Stevenson himself had done much to destroy. Thus, he and his colleagues on the board raised an initial $1 million to help bridge over the breakdown in foreign exchange and provide the tools, machinery, and know-how to develop untapped resources in different parts of the world. Doesn't this sound a little bit like what Stevenson was getting up to prior to World War II? Going around the developing world, helping develop it? So on paper, the World Commerce Corporation was supposed to develop and rehabilitate economically backward countries. All of this, of course, is something of a scary euphemism. Still, this was right after World War II, so public confidence in the Allies was pretty high. And one U.S. newspaper editorial said, If there were several world commerce corporations, there would be no need for a Marshall Plan. The reality was somewhat less glamorous. Let's walk through an example of a transaction that Hyde provides for us. So this is still from the pro-world commerce corporation lens. So this transaction takes place in the Balkans in 1951, where Yugoslavia was short on dollars and medicine, but Yugoslavia had $300,000 worth of paprika. 
so the World Commerce Corporation traded a year's worth of penicillin for the paprika, which they then sold in other markets. In other words, they sold a year's worth of penicillin worth much less than 300000 to a war-torn country that had no other options. I'm sure you're thinking what I'm thinking, but luckily, Hyde says, while normally working on a commission basis, the corporation would sometimes forego its profit if it felt it could help an impoverished or economically backward country by giving it the facilities of its international connections. Even though, you know, literally the entire business model was profiting off of these exact scenarios. So H. Montgomery Hyde's version was pretty tame, right? And it might even sound good if you're not completely jaded about international trade like I am. But let's add some facts, though, and see if we can't get closer to the truth. So right off the bat, there's a major discrepancy in Hyde's story because the British-American-Canadian Corporation actually started in 1945, not 1947. So Hyde is lying about that, probably based off the optics, because forming a corporation to immediately profit off of war-torn Europe doesn't look as good. I guess two years sounds like a good waiting period. And then, to boot, the British-American-Canadian Corporation's board was filled exclusively with either OSS or BSC men. It was based in New York, but registered in Panama. Statinius of U.S. Steel apparently provided the majority of the funding, while the spies provided the connections and operations. Roald Dahl said that it was David Ogilvie who came up with the idea for the World Commerce Corporation. Ogilvie reportedly said, Why, we all needed jobs in civilian life. Yes, the justifications come real easy, I imagine, when you've just spent the war out of direct danger playing spymaster. Tom Hill, who worked for the World Commerce Corporation, later recalled, The idea was to take advantage of the organization and international contacts that were set up during the war. The goal was to set up various companies, mostly in Central and South America. Now, that's quite the different story from what Hyde says the purpose of the company was. Although we know by now not to trust him, at least not completely. I wonder what those companies were doing in Central and South America. If you're listening to this episode, I hope you're slowly being overcome by a sense of impending dread. So, the name change of the corporation came in 1947, when it switched from the British-American-Canadian Corporation, to the World Commerce Corporation. Other people who were officers and or members of the board included George Mule Merton, David Ogilvie, and Sergeant Pepper himself, John Arthur Reed Pepper. Then, later, other prominent intelligence operatives would reportedly join on, including Russell Forgan, who is a banker and OSS man, Lester Armour, who is a banker who married a white Russian princess, Sidney Weinberg, a.k.a. Mr. Wall Street, who was the longtime director of Goldman Sachs. There was W.K. Eliscu. There was Nelson Rockefeller, who should need no introductions. There was John J. McCloy, who was president of the World Bank, chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank, chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, 
member of the Warren Commission. Oh, we are definitely going to talk about John J. McCloy in the future. Trust me. Then there was Richard Mellon. Couldn't confirm 100% whether this is Richard Mellon Scaife or Richard King Mellon, so I will keep my mouth shut about both of them for now. And finally, Sir Victor Sassoon. Reportedly, the World Commerce Corporation lasted until 1962 when it was liquidated for tax reasons. So, what was the purpose of the World Commerce Corporation? Hyde said that it was originally designed to fill the void left by the breakup of the big German cartels. Tom Hill said that it was to take advantage of the organization and international contacts that were set up during the war. Technically, I suppose both of these are true in a narrow sense, but the truth is a lot worse. We get a clue about the purpose of the World Commerce Corporation in a letter that Wild Bill Donovan sent to General Clay, who was High Commissioner for Occupied Europe. He sent this letter to him at the State Department in November 1947. The letter defines the general purpose of the corporation in the excerpt from the letter, which I will read now. <clears throat> In our view, the restoration of the economic balance in Europe is fundamentally a problem of industrial and agricultural production. The purposes to be served by such a development are the maintenance of population and the creation of internationally exchangeable values, which are essential in supporting the continuance of productive operations. The restoration and the continuing processes, which involve the international exchange of goods, are the fields of primary interest to the World Commerce Corporation. In these directions, we are prepared to cooperate with private industry and official bodies. The World Commerce Corporation is prepared to provide its full cooperation to the joint occupying authority towards the restoration of production in Germany. World markets and price reports, industrial investigations looking toward the development and submission of specific proposals, and a general commercial information service are contemplated as proper elements of cooperative activity by World Commerce Corporation in Germany." Unquote. They're using very boring speech, of course, but they're basically saying that the World Commerce Corporation is designed to rebuild Germany and get its productive powers back on track. Not only that, but to restore pre-war levels of production. That is what they are telling the Allied Powers. They're telling the Allied Powers this at a time when the Allied Powers' specific goals were to eliminate Germany's industrial productive capabilities. But let's also not forget the second half of what Tom Hill said about the purpose of the World Commerce Corporation. The goal was to set up various companies, mostly in Central and South America. Now, neither of those things would necessitate having every member of the World Commerce Corporation be a member, a veteran of the British Security Coordination and the Office of Strategic Services. So, what was the World Commerce Corporation really about? So, decades after the fact, it may seem like a foregone conclusion that Nazi war criminals would end up running West Germany, West German companies, NATO, and so on. But, that's too pat of an answer. It wasn't a series of errors or mistakes, and it wasn't a foregone conclusion. 
it wasn't part of the plan of FDR or of most of the Allied leaders. It was a well-organized and well-financed plot that was not at all a foregone conclusion. Yes, it could have gone much better, but it also could have been much, much worse. Here's a quote from James Stuart Martin of the Department of Justice's prosecution team in Europe. We had not been stopped in Germany by German business, we had been stopped in Germany by American business. The forces that stopped us had operated in the U.S., but had not operated in the open. We were not stopped by a law of Congress, by an executive order of the president, or even by a change of policy approved by the president. In short, whatever it was that stopped us was not the government, but it clearly had command of channels through which the government normally operates. The relative powerlessness of governments in the growing economic power is, of course, not new. National governments stood on the sidelines while bigger operators arranged the world's affairs. So, something that was not the government but clearly had command of channels through which the government normally operates stopped the Department of Justice from prosecuting economic war criminals. By the way, that quote gets us halfway to a functional definition of the deep state, for what that's worth. So, here are some discrete, unrelated facts. Did you know that fully half of the Reichsbank gold held during the Nazi era is unaccounted for? Did you know that Martin Bormann, Hitler's personal secretary, set up 770 corporations with bearer shares? Bearer shares meaning that whoever literally holds the piece of paper owns the share meaning that the owners of bearer shares can only be traced with extreme difficulty. These corporations were scattered across the globe and represented a wide array of economic activity, from steel and chemicals to electrical companies. The firms were located as follows. 58 in Portugal, 112 in Spain, 233 in Sweden, 234 in Switzerland, 35 in Turkey, and 98 in Argentina. We are talking about a Nazi underground whose scale and scope is not at all well known, but much wider than is believed by the public. We are talking about much more than just a few estates in Argentina and Brazil, much more than a couple factories. We're talking about much, much more than Colonia Dignidad or the cocaine coup in Bolivia. We are talking about a Fourth Reich. We're far afield from William Stevenson and the World Commerce Corporation, so let's reel it back in. Basically, the World Commerce Corporation was helping Nazi Germany rebuild, this time as global networks of transnational corporations. Let's get back into it. So the World Commerce Corporation was liquidated in 1962. I'm extrapolating, but I believe that the main purpose was probably accomplished by that time, which was facilitating the restoration of, of the Nazi power elite, both in West Germany and abroad. By 1962, West Germany had, its, had more or less had its sovereignty, and the risk that Nazi war criminals would be prosecuted was dramatically diminished, 
and the West German government and economy were now humming away nicely. And the Cold War had heated up. By 1962, the job was probably mostly done. Now, the thing is, speaking broadly, it's never really worth it to fixate on just one particular organization as if it explains everything. Like, you know how sometimes people fixate on the Bilderberg Group or Davos or the Council on Foreign Relations, or, you know, take your pick? That's not how it works. At this level, everything is a lot more like networking, and these same people will dissolve one organization and start a new one with, like, largely the same people. At this level, you can't focus on one organization, you have to look at the whole network. And that's what happened with Stevenson's British security coordination. Many of the key players more or less became involved with the World Commerce Corporation. Then, many of these same players were involved with a company called Permindex. Now, Permindex was Permanent Industrial Expositions. On paper, it was an obscure international trading exposition company incorporated in Switzerland and headquartered in Montreal. Permindex's president and chairman was Major Louis Mortimer Bloomfield, who is a veteran of Britain's Special Operations Executive. It was Bloomfield who eventually took Stevenson's mantle, as Stevenson was 66 at this point and was soon to have a stroke that would basically take him out of the espionage game. Now, who was Bloomfield? Bloomfield glows so much that I might go blind looking at him. He was born in Montreal, went to McGill University, became a lawyer, and was assigned to operate for a time in the international zone of Tangiers. Bloomfield was unique in that during World War II, while already being in the Special Operations Executive, he was actually commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Army and also assigned to the OSS. And anytime someone's in two organizations like that, that's usually pretty remarkable. Now, in the OSS, Bloomfield worked with the FBI as a recruiter for its counter-espionage Division 5. It is because he was tied up and working with the OSS that I didn't mention him during my episodes on the British security coordination. But he had a very, very interesting job during the war. Also, because, probably because he glows so much, Hyde did not seem to want to mention him. Now I quote from the Executive Intelligence Review, which, if you didn't know, was run by the LaRouche cult, so it's always a bombastic source. You have to take it with a grain of salt, but just one grain. Now, Executive Intelligence Review said of Bloomfield, quote, Bloomfield, described by numerous authors and associates as a practicing homosexual, developed a deeply personal friendship with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. So, let's talk about 1963. In 1963, over many months, from spring to fall, William Stevenson and Major Bloomfield held a series of meetings at the Trial Compound, which was a retirement community that Stevenson built at Montego Bay. Let's go through who was present at this meeting. So there was William Stevenson, of course. 
There's Ferenc Nagy, who was the cabinet minister of the pro-Nazi Horthy government in Hungary and later became its prime minister. There was Giorgio Mantello, who is Mussolini's trade minister. There was Jean de Menil, a white Russian who owned a heavy equipment manufacturer that was often used as a cover for weapon shipments. The de Menil family, of course, had major ties to the modern art movement in the U.S., and I believe possibly also the Sufis, the U.S. Sufi movement. There was also Paul Rygorodsky, who was a white Russian prominent in the Solidarist movement. Finally, finally, and here is the real mic drop moment. Present at these meetings in 1963 was Clay Shaw. That's right. That Clay Shaw, the former OSS officer who directed the nebulous New Orleans International Trade Mart. Clay Shaw, who was prosecuted by Jim Garrison for the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Infamously, Clay Shaw knew and was friends with David Ferry and the rest of the homosexual underground in New Orleans. Clay Shaw, who knew Guy Bannister. Clay Shaw, who knew Lee Harvey Oswald. Clay Shaw, who is played by Tommy Lee Jones in the movie JFK. Clay Shaw, who Richard Helms, director of the CIA, testified before Congress in 1979, confirming that Clay Shaw did in fact work for the CIA. That Clay Shaw. So, so, uh... So what was Clay Shaw doing, visiting Major Bloomfield and William Stevenson in Jamaica in 1963? A year in which you might say he had a lot on his plate. And in such company, too. Whoa, why? What was he doing? Well, both Jim Garrison and Executive Intelligence Review thought that they were there to plot out the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Maybe if we look at Bloomfield more, we can figure this out. On March 4th, 1967, the Italian left-wing newspaper Paese Serra published a, published a story alleging that Clay Shaw, who was arrested and charged with conspiring to assassinate President John F. Kennedy by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison three days later, was linked to the CIA through his involvement in the Centro Mondial Commerciale a subsidiary of Permindex, in which Shaw was a board member. Very specific, clear allegations by Paisi Serra, one of the Italian Communist Party's newspapers. If you, dear listener, are on the left, do not let them tell you that conspiracy theories are inherently right-wing or that they don't help build a mass movement. The Italian Communists didn't think so, and they had a way stronger movement than we have in the U.S. Major Bloomfield was a founding partner in the prestigious law firm of Phillips, Weinberg, Bloomfield, and Goodman, which was the firm that represented and controlled the Bronfman family fortunes. Charles de Gaulle, who was targeted for multiple serious assassination attempts, went public with Bloomfield's Permindex alleging that they were a conduit for funds into the secret army, secret army organization, 
the OAS, to finance the 1962 assassination attempt against him. As a result of these revelations, Major Bloomfield's name was taken off of the law firm's letterhead in 1968. So, President de Gaulle's SDECE, which was the French intelligence agency. So the SDECE exposed a nest of corporate entities which served as vehicles for ongoing special operations executive activity under Major Bloomfield, including the Israeli Continental Corporation, the Canadian subsidiary of the Dutch Heineken's Breweries, and Credit Suisse of Canada, which was a sister bank to the Credit Suisse of Geneva. These were, according to French intelligence, used to launder hit money to the OAS. All of these companies were investors in Permindex. So, like Major Bloomfield's law partner, Lazarus Phillips, and their client, the Bronfmans, Major Bloomfield was close to the Zionists in Canada. Major Bloomfield was the chairman of the Histadrut Campaign of Canada, which owned one-third of the gross national product of Israel. The Histadrut controlled the second-largest bank in Israel and has been shown to launder Mossad's money. Major Bloomfield was president of Heineken's Breweries of Canada and was a co-founder of WWF Canada, which is to say the World Wildlife Fund, which is much more than just a conservation society. He was also a member of the Sovereign Order of St. John, which if you've got to ask, you're not ready to hear about. I'm joking, of course, but other people have documented it better than me, especially Recluse of the Vice Up blog and the Farm Podcast. I will limit myself to quoting Executive Intelligence Review talking about the Sovereign Order of St. John. They say, it's the Queen's official chivalric order, the most venerable military and hospitaller Order of St. John of Jerusalem. As an operating arm of the Sovereign Order, the Red Cross Ambulance Service is an official intelligence arm of the British monarchy, frequently called upon to, to carry out espionage and terrorist activities. So, along with Major Bloomfield's corporate and charitable activities in Canada, and his ongoing work with the FBI, Major Bloomfield was given the responsibility of developing an international network of shipping routes that would be essential for the burgeoning narcotics traffic and related black market activities. You remember when I said that shipping magnate is a euphemism for intelligence operative, right? To that end, Major Bloomfield became director of the Israeli-Canadian Maritime League, which is a trade organ a trade association. Simultaneously, Bloomfield became consul general in charge of Liberia. Now, Liberia is both a tax shelter and a secondary offshore banking center. Its banks were more or less completely unregulated, and I mean like completely. So consequently, its banks are full of black market transfers. For many of the same reasons, Liberia was also a major nexus for smuggling. Liberia was also a major nexus for smuggling for basically all of the same reasons. At this time, it had 
absolutely no shipping regulations and more or less no law enforcement, at least not applicable to the shipyards and docks. While Major Bloomfield was Liberian consul, just about every bulk cargo ship ever found to have narcotics was at this time flying the Liberian flag. One final connection regarding Major Bloomfield here. In 1952, Bloomfield became an official of the United Nations Organization, and he became one of the leading advisors on international law. The United Nations Organization was one of those nebulous yet important NGOs that would go that would advise the United Nations and international courts on matters of international law. What did Major Bloomfield do for them? His area of expertise was international terrorism, piracy, and civil aviation. And it was due to his quote-unquote expertise that the United Nations International Civil Air Civil Aviation Commission was headquartered in Montreal. Basically, we have the fox guarding the hen house regarding international laws relating to aviation. <clears throat> so check this out. According to corporate records on file in Bern, Switzerland, the following individuals were listed were officially listed as officers and board members of Permindex at the time of its incorporation by Major Bloomfield. So, mind you, this is not speculation. This is formal corporate stuff here, of the very extremely spooky variety. So, of the officers and board members, the first couple we talked about, there's Major Lewis Mortimer Bloomfield, of course, President and Chairman of the Board of Permindex, there's the aforementioned Ferenc Nagy, Jean de Menil, Paul Rygorodsky, Colonel Clay Shaw. There's Giorgio Montello. Then we have some new names. There's Prince Gutierrez de Spadafora, who is former Undersecretary of Agriculture to Mussolini, who was also sponsor of the Sicilian Separatist Movement. H. Frank Simonfey, former Nazi collaborator in Hungary, and a leader in the Solidarist movement. There's Major General John Bruce Medaris, who is former director of Defense Industrial Security Command and was on the board of directors of the Lionel Corporation. There's Carlo D'Amelio, who is an attorney in Rome representing the financial holdings of the House of Savoy and the House of Pallavicinia. He was also the attorney for Circulo Rex, and the General Counsel for Centro Mondiale Commerciale. Now, here are the real revelations, and I'm going to put them in loose order of least to most insane. There was Munir Churbagi, who was uncle of King Farouk of Egypt. There was Giuseppe Zigiotti, who was head of the Italian political party Fascist National Association for Militia Arms. There was Max Hagemann, editor of the Munich National Zeitung, which was a neo-Nazi publication. There was Hans Seligman, who is a banker in Basel, Switzerland, and he was of the R-Crowd set. Then, here's the piece de resistance. On the board of Permindex was Roy Cohn, famous attorney of New York City, and, of course, 
former general counsel to Senator Joseph McCarthy. He also had ties to the Lionel Corporation. And here's the best one. Joseph Bonanno, the syndicate boss of Montreal and Phoenix, one of the top mafia bosses in the United States. And he, of course, had ties to the Lionel Corporation as well. That's right. On the board of Permindex was Roy Cohn and Joseph Bonanno, along with various fascists, Zionists, businessmen, and William Stevenson's protege, Major Bloomfield. Now, tell me, knowing all of this, what do you think Permindex was up to meeting with Colonel Clay Shaw in late 1963? After William Stevenson's stroke, Stevenson moved to Bermuda. I don't know, maybe the weather was better, but I mean, he was already in Jamaica, so I don't know why Bermuda would really be better, except maybe to be closer to the action regarding where the Permindex network ended up residing, which is to say, Resorts International. Lol. So, William Stevenson died on January 3rd, 1989. He was buried in Bermuda in a secret in a secret ceremony at St. John's Church. He told his adopted daughter before he died, I don't want people to know that I am dead until I am buried. He was a spook to the end. Major Bloomfield died of a heart attack in Jerusalem in 1984. Prior to his death, he did that rich person thing, donating 31 boxes of documents related to his notable clients' charity work and correspondence with prominent politicians, including President H.W. Bush. He donated all of this under the condition that the documents would not be made public until 20 years after his death. Then, his widow extended the restriction to 25 years after her death. So, at the end of the day, what do we have? Lots of smoke, right? Maybe not any fire? Well, since programmed chill is nothing if not rigorously fair, I should provide a counter-argument to all the accusations of Jim Garrison and Executive Intelligence Review. The CIA's counterintelligence staff took the allegations from Paisi Serra, which was again that Italian communist newspaper, they took the allegations made therein and conducted an internal investigation. And they found that those allegations were not true and that neither Permindex nor Centro Mondiale Commerciale were a front to channel funds to anti-communists. So there you go. Glad we cleared that up. There's nothing to see here. Just move along, folks. Move along. There's no reason to think that any of those people being on the same board of directors together would be suspicious in the slightest, because the CIA counterintelligence staff told us so. So, what can we learn from today? Well, if nothing else, we can learn that they are much, much more organized than we realize, and they absolutely do sit around in smoke-filled rooms making plans. It's a big club, and we are not in it. And remember, this is important, most of this stuff was figured out by following the money, and, along the same lines, following the legal paperwork, which sort of goes hand in hand. Additionally, this is very important too, we only know this stuff because the French and President de Gaulle were so pissed off that they were being targeted. So, de Gaulle allowed his spies to go nuclear, so to speak, and revealed 
a ton of this to the press. By the way, dear listener, I'm never trying to deceive you. Permindex is real. And Jim Garrison thought but was not certain that they could have been behind President Kennedy's assassination. Executive Intelligence Review, the LaRouche people, they were pretty sure that Permindex was behind the assassination. Because, as you know, the British are behind every plot. I'm only mostly joking. But, to be clear, Permindex certainly definitely did try to kill President de Gaulle. Which is to say that the OAS, the Secret Army Organization, tried to assassinate President de Gaulle using Permindex's network and funds that originally came from British MI6 and CIA. But, but, I'm a simple man. I believe in Occam's razor, if you catch my drift. I'm not sure you need to bring in British involvement to explain everything that went on there on that day, if you catch my drift. Even if Colonel Clayshaw was running around with Permindex. Now, the actual connective tissue that links Permindex to the JFK assassination in any meaningful way beyond Colonel Clayshaw's association with them comes from something called the Torbit document which is a really interesting piece of work. Now, I've mostly limited Torbit information out of this episode, by the way, relying on things we actually know to be true. And the Torbit document we do not know for sure to be true. But let's talk about the Torbit document for a minute. The Torbit document was written by a lawyer from Texas who had served in the Navy. Ding, 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 that should be a warning sign right off the bat. Other major elements of the Torbit document include accounts of murder-for-hire hits in Texas on some state and federal judges. The murder of these judges really happened, though the conclusions about who was behind it are questionable. The Torbit document talks about a fascist pedophile boys camp in Tennessee that did exist, with half of the boys camp going on to form Boys Town in Nebraska, where Charles Manson would stay, and, of course, Boys Town figures prominently in the Franklin credit ring scandal, and the other half of the fascist pedophile boys camp going to Mexico. The Torbit document alleges that they set up a secret school of assassins in Mexico. These assassins, according to the Torbit document, were supposed to be responsible for the killings of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy, along with JFK, of course. Now, Torbett, which was not his real name, said that his sources were a Secret Service agent and an FBI agent. Now, would you say that that sounds like reliable sources? So, one of the guys from Lobster Magazine, Robin Ramsey, wrote that he believed that the Torbett document was an attempt by the CIA to link the FBI to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, thereby diminishing the much stronger ties that the CIA had to the incident. Now, in preparing for this episode, I discussed with an unnamed co-conspirator about disinformation. We were talking about how effective disinformation uses real data points, but rolls them into something easy to discredit, thereby discrediting the whole enchilada throwing the baby out with the bathwater, shitcoating in other words, although that term can also apply to other things. It's my belief that the Torbett document is disinformation. Really good disinformation, they say that it's often 
90-95% true. But it can be very hard to know which 90-95%, to 95%, right? So that's what I'm getting at with the Torbit document. All that we really know at the end of the day is that Colonel Clayshaw did go to Jamaica in 1963 and that he was associated with Permendix. Anything beyond that relating to the JFK assassination is a hypothesis. And for the record, no, I do not think that the British killed JFK. That is the great irony with a lot of this stuff. Any normal person would be allergic to finding a cockroach in their ice cream sundae, even though there are multiple government agencies who have people whose full-time job it is to put cockroaches in ice cream sundaes day in, day out, forever. As a people, we are naturally allergic to ambiguity. But if we ever want to get to the bottom of anything, we can't be. It just makes researching a massive pain to the average person who doesn't want to shift through volumes of lies mixed with truths. You know, which is, you know, Satan's methods. So, did you ever think Programmed to Chill would get this weird? Neither did I, but here we are. So, this is pretty hot. This is some hot topics. I'm gonna have to calm us down. We're gonna have to chill. We have to chill. That is the cardinal rule of Program to Chill. Most of the things that I want to talk about are in the post-World War II era, but right now, I still feel the need to cover some of these topics, some of these pre-war and World War II topics, to properly lay the groundwork for what comes later. For sources, I used a little bit of Room 3603, as well as the book Agents of Influence. I used the book The Nazi Hydra in Fascist America, and my personal favorite, the Special Report on Permindex by Executive Intelligence Review, as well as the Spartacus Educational Website and the Torbit document. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Thanks for sticking with me while I talked JFK facts. As always, just show a friend the show. That always helps. I need to be on my way. I'm heading to the Old Synagogue in Essen, Germany. See you there, and God bless. Thank you.